Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the AOC Podcast. I'm Johnny, and I'm here with AJ. And uh, last week, you guys had an opportunity to hear my backstory. It was quite the experience. I was a little bit nervous. I was nervous about doing it, and then I was also nervous about it airing. However, the response was, it's been received very well. I had a lot of fun speaking with you all about it. And today, we're going to dig in with a little bit of AJ's story. AJ, how do you feel about that today? I'm feeling good. I'm excited. I have some fun stories that I haven't shared anywhere. Yeah. So I think the audience will get an interesting perspective on my background. And I had a lot of fun interviewing you. So it should be a good show. All right. Well, I guess we'll go ahead and kick that off. Let's keep it simple and let's keep it on a linear timeline. And we'll go to Dearborn, Michigan in the 80s. Where you're going to paint us a picture of the house, how, what was going on. Let's kick it off there. AJ, as a child growing up in Dearborn. My father was a single dad, so he raised me and my sister. He actually won custody. My mom, unfortunately, had some substance abuse issues, and she was abusive to me and my sister. So my dad lost his job. There was a lot of fighting when I was very young, and me and my sister were both put in foster homes while the courts tried to figure out who deserved custody, obviously. Uh, unemployed father and an abusive mom, the court really wasn't looking fondly on either of them as being able to support children. So I was in foster care for almost six months. And then uh, my dad did win custody. And thankfully, my aunt, my dad's sister, she stepped in to really play the mom role growing up. And she babysat and watched me and my sister. And we spent a lot of time going to visit her in the clinic. While I was growing up, my dad uh, was working for the city. So he had a very manual labor intensive job. And because of that, he put a lot of emphasis on me and my sister going to college and getting an education as a way out of this cycle that him and his dad had been through. Tough labor was what his world was all about. And he didn't want to see me or my sister have to go through that. Education was very important growing up. And my sister and I were really close. She's two years younger than me. What's so interesting is I kind of got the science analytical side. She got the creative side. So as we talked about last week, how you picked up a guitar and mm -hmm. that was your outlet. For me growing up, I picked up encyclopedias. It was one of the first gifts my dad gave me and my sister was an encyclopedia set. With that set, a bonus was a thick book with every species on the planet that had been identified. So birds, mammals, fish, everything. And that one was full color. Yeah. So the encyclopedia was tons of words, black and white, no pictures. 
this book was full color. So I fell in love with this book, memorizing all these species growing up. And I wanted to be a marine biologist. That was one of the very first things I wanted to do around kindergarten. And I started to have an aptitude for science. So my dad started to tell me that I should probably think about becoming a doctor, right? That's a very honorable job. Yeah. And my family friends were nurses and doctors because of my aunt working in the clinic. So I had very fond memories of the hospital and spending time there and getting to know all these awesome doctors in white lab coats. And, and that really became my narrative through my youth was, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm studying to become a doctor. Something that was much in the same line for myself is, you know, I had mentioned that I had picking up musical, musical instruments that gave me a lot of value in my household. And then it, my dad, he was playing in these bars on the weekends. And my grandfather had run one of these clubs. And my aunt, my mom, they would go there during the weekend afternoons to clean the place up for that evening and get paid some extra money. And so it was interesting. You were talking about how the hospital became a place of interest for you and seeing all these people work and you were able to quell your interests even more. It was funny going to these clubs because I knew this is where my dad was hanging out in the evening. To me, this was ritual of Friday night. They're getting dressed like from the whole thing. And I just, I thought it was wonderful how they interacted, how they got dressed up. And I guess I still enjoy that sort of ritual today. But going to that club during those afternoons, knowing this place was sort of forbidden for me, but knowing this is where the adults hang out and then having, seeing things like a pool table and that is lit up in a certain way that makes it very attractive to a 10 year old boy or the uh, pinball machine, it's over there clinking and it's lit up. Everything's colored in a way that it makes it to a 10 year old boy very adult like so it's like a place that you want to hang out more at we had been talking about this earlier how our grandfathers used to take us to like the vsws for you was the knights of columbus i believe so some of my most fond memories with my dad growing up my dad was in the navy he served in vietnam stationed in guam on an aircraft carrier he was a member at the veterans of foreign wars hall vfw for short, and also as raised me and my sister Catholic. So he was a Knights of Columbus member. And these were male dominant clubs that you had to have a membership for to get in the bar, essentially. My dad would take me and my sister there on Friday evening, and we'd get to see his third place. And exactly that, we get a bag of better made potato chips and a can of Fago, and <laughs> the we'd Fago. let her rip on the pool table. Yeah. We'd stare at the people playing video poker come back smelling like cigarette smoke and feeling like we hung out with the adults. We were the cool kids. Absolutely. And a lot of my friends didn't have this opportunity. This was something that my dad gave to me and my sister. So definitely fond memories, being around the bar scene. And that's a really interesting part about the VFWs, Knights of Columbus, is being a male club. You know, you have guys who are great grandfathers, mm -hmm. grandfathers, uncles, and fathers all in the same club. So I was meeting veterans who were in their 80s and listening to their stories, and they all took an interest in the story that my dad had about me becoming a doctor. My dad nicknamed me his 401KA. So there was a lot of pressure on me to perform in school, and my sister kind of struggled a little bit in my shadow in that regard. She focused more on the creative side, and then she finally found photography when she got to college. Not to take too much of course, but I wanted to go back to that Knights of Columbus idea of where there's all these men from, you know, 21 years old to great grandfathers all hanging out. What's interesting, and obviously we've talked about this, how 
that sort of space and mentorship is now disappearing. I don't have the data to back this up, but through my experience and through my eyes, I can put together a few pieces. And it seems to me that a lot of our social fabric that was held together by places like that in the past are now gone and now substituted with social media. We've talked about the pains and the problems with that. You know, we had done a podcast on that before called Third Place that if you haven't listened to, it's on one of our toolbox episodes, and I would suggest you go back and listen to it because it kind of gives you an idea of how in America, the coffee shops, the corner bar, that role that it played, how important it actually was now that we don't have that anymore. Yeah. So third place being the place you hang out that's not work or home. And the concept here is, you know, when you talk about the VFW post or you talk about Knights of Columbus, we're talking about small TVs, not much in the way of entertainment. What is entertaining is conversation. Conversation. And storytelling. I remember distinctly there were certain members at each of these bars that I used to run to to hear their stories. Sure. Because they were incredible storytellers. And my dad was also a really good storyteller. We loved listening to all these war stories and, and what life was like back in their day. It really turned me on to the idea of being a good storyteller has an impact on people and sure. it makes you memorable. Well, the other thing about it I think that is wonderful is you're going to get mentorship there that seems to be a little bit difficult to find nowadays. And then you could maybe go onto some forum and post something, but then you got some troll following you talking shit to you behind. It's like, that won't happen at the Knights of Columbus. You know why? That dude will be kicked out. Yeah. <laughs> there's like, there's none of that going on. So you could go be vulnerable, find someone who's worked through those problems and give you straight up advice, straight up mentorship. And, only, and not from an expert point of view, but by somebody who's gone through it. And that's sometimes all you need to be able to do is talk to somebody and listen to somebody who's gone through what you've been. Yeah, and who could tell you, hey, it's not the end of the world. It's going to be okay. What I loved about both of those locations is you literally, you go to the door, you buzz, yep. the little bar opens, they look you over and go, okay, come on in, Ron. Oh yeah, my son AJ is coming in. Great. Okay, pull up a stool. How cool is that? Even if they had that now, let's just say it's an all-inclusive place. If there was a secret knock and you could bring your friends to when they're coming out of town, they're like, God damn, this place is cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they, that definitely added to the mystique that my dad was able to take us to this place <laughs> and me and my sister would really enjoy our Friday spent with dad. And, and listen, my dad started off working for the city of Dearborn Heights as a, a water meter reader. He logged miles and miles on his legs every day, manually reading people's water meters. So we didn't get much time with him during the week. He'd come home, eat, and he would be wiped. The weekend would roll around, and that's when I had more quality time with my dad in that regard. And I'm, I'm incredibly thankful that my aunt stepped in to be a mom. I consider her my mom at this point. When my mom did lose custody and she had her substance abuse problems, she was hospitalized, and I have honestly lost track of her, and we never stayed in touch. But that part of my childhood of having that bond with my dad, that opportunity to spend time with him on Fridays and get that mentorship. So perfect example, you know, one of the first crushes I ever had was this girl named Abby, who happened to be my dad's friend's daughter. And my dad would take my sister to daddy and daughter dance. And yeah. my dad's friend would take his daughter, Abby. So I got to see Abby a couple times a year, all dressed up. And in my youth, we're talking first crush, like this is pre-middle school, right? 
I'm going to the to the VFW, and my dad's like, yeah, AJ's got a crush on Abby, and all these guys are giving me uh. feedback, what I should say, <laughs> how I can ask her out, all this stuff. So it was great to be able to receive that kind of mentorship from men that I really looked up to, the greatest generation. That's fantastic. As I moved into middle school days, so basically I went to a Catholic school for the first few years, so kindergarten through grade two. Then I switched to public school, and by the time I made my way to middle school, there was a big emphasis on sports, and I played football. And that was the one thing that I also saw a lot of my dad's pride come out in, me being on the football field and him being able to tell his buddies that he sure. was starting. It was really interesting how sports then fulfilled that mentorship, and a lot of my coaches became mentors. So I, I do feel, and obviously working with a lot of clients here in L.A., when you don't have that mentorship, that older advice coming at you to help you out, sometimes these problems can feel unsolvable. And I was fortunate to have mentorship throughout my youth. So a question that you asked me at the end of the podcast and last week, which I think will help set up things here where we're at now, is at this time, did you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert as a younger AJ? My dad, I always felt was introverted and a little shy. He had friends for sure, but we were a pretty private family. Obviously, my dad went in custody and, and having an abusive mom. Uh, a lot of that stuff was kept under wraps. We weren't very public about what was going on. So I've definitely felt introverted growing up. I struggled to connect with people. I struggled to be social. And as you can imagine, having to move and change schools right? You're always kind of shifting gears. And that's what was so great about football, because football, I didn't have to talk. I could tackle, I could catch, I could showcase a little yeah. bit of athletic prowess and wow enough kids that they take interest in me. So my social skills were less important on the football field. But what about the diplomacy that you had to employ to get along with those players? I was a smaller guy growing up. I was always the tiniest one. With my schoolwork and testing well, they were really pushing for me to skip a grade. And my dad didn't want to see that happen because I, I was a November birthday. So I was already one of the right. younger ones yep. in class. I was significantly smaller than a lot of boys. So my dad felt that if I skipped a grade, then I would have a whole other world of hurt. He said no to that. But with that, you know, I was a bit of an outsider. I was involved in this program called Ignite, where basically they took the gifted kids, and once a, a month, we would go to a separate school and we would yeah. basically be able to do whatever the hell we want. Would they pull you out of regular school? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so you're already marked. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that day I didn't have to take tests, I didn't have homework, oh, wow. and I get to go to this special school where they have tons of funding. So I'm yeah. playing with erector sets and Legos and robotics, <laughs> and all my friends are back in class having to take quizzes and all that stuff. So I was setting myself apart for the wrong reasons. Now, what ended up happening is I, I did get picked on. I did get bullied. And football was that opportunity for me to kind of fight back a little bit. Football also gave me an opportunity to, to win over some friends who could protect me. Well, yeah, it's also in that environment, you're able to show what your strengths are in an environment where you're not going to have any retaliatory stuff coming your way. It's in a safe environment. So we do these the drills called Oklahoma's, where basically you lay on your back, both of you, helmet to helmet, and the coach blows the whistle, and you hop up, and one of you has to tackle the other. And whoever goes down first is a loser. 
And so it was very mano a mano, you got to be aggressive. In the beginning, they always tried to match you up by size. And me being one of the smaller guys, it was tough for them to find someone else to match <laughs> me up, as you can imagine. But I did show a quickness and getting onto my feet. So I was actually able to tackle some of the bigger guys just based on my speed and getting up before them. So they actually put me in middle school at nose guard. That's a position usually filled for a larger guy. <laughs> right. So as you can imagine, you know, I'm this little tiny small fry and I'm quick off the ball. Yeah. So I'm weaseling my way into the backfield and just causing havoc for these guys. So That's the great. bigger guys started to really take a liking to me, especially on the defensive line. So I had a little bit of protection in, in that regard. I, I finally started to win over some friends, but I certainly was introverted and, and struggled making friends throughout my middle school years and high school years. Rolling into to high school, you had mentioned that your dad wanted to continue encouraging you to play football, but you had found some new challenges. High school, at that point, I was a total late bloomer. So the growth spurt hit all of my <laughs> friends well before me. I know how that goes really well. <laughs> and my name, Andrew Joseph, that's where the AJ comes from. I know a lot of listeners always ask, is, is AJ your name and what, what does it stand for? Growing up, my family called me AJ. And then I got to high school and my dad wanted me to go to a Catholic high school. He felt the public school system, especially in high school, didn't do a good job of preparing me for college and education no. was really important. <laughs> he sent me to a very small high school in Allen Park, Michigan, Cabrini. And uh, it's so funny because I've had a few people from Cabrini reach out to me over the last few years. People that you knew or people that just had found out you went to that school wanted to say hi? People that I did not know, did not go to school with, but found out it's a very small school. We were class C back then. So that's 300 to 400 students. The whole school. The whole school. Yeah, that's tiny. So my class had 75 kids in it. And there was an AJ in high school. And he had gone to grade school, Catholic grade school with everyone. So yeah. he was already established AJ. I was not coming in and taking over as AJ. No. So I reverted to Andy in high school. Because I was small, because I was an outsider, again, I leaned on football to make friends. And I made the varsity because there was no JV. So my dad pushed me to try out. The coaches let me play in the fourth game of the season. And we were a really good team my freshman year. This was one of the better teams the high school had ever had going to the state playoffs. And we had a star who was going to Division One, which is pretty rare for a Class C school. Early on in the season, we were playing a team and we were up by 35 to nothing. The coaches go, okay, everyone can play. So they're putting in everyone and they throw me out there at cornerback. The other team, the opposing team, they had a, another really good player playing running back who was going to go D1 as well. And their coach said, all right, these guys ran up the score on us. Screw these guys. Put the starters back in. We got to get some points on the board. I'm on the right side playing corner. The coach on the opposite side of the field draws up a jet sweep. So the quarterback tosses the ball to the running back, and he's got a full head of steam coming at me. Looking and a line. Run me over. At this point, it's me versus him. So I go low, and I get him to the ground. And everyone goes crazy on the sideline. They can't believe me being one of the smallest guys. To give you an idea, I was five, six, I want to say, a buck 20 playing varsity football. So I was not anything impressive. In fact, the announcer made a comment that that was the smallest varsity player he'd ever seen. I was surprised that your dad allowed for you to do that. I, I loved football growing up, and maybe it was my mom who talked him out of it, but I was always like, no, you'll get killed. 
<laughs> no way you playing football. So it's like I had to go find something else, which took me to skateboarding. But oh, my dad worshipped Michigan football. He was a Bo Schimbeckler fan. Our first dog was named Bo. <laughs> and football was religion outside of Catholicism in our house. Gotcha. So I was <laughs> destined to play football from a very young age. There was no getting around that. What was so interesting, so my dad played baseball growing up. He did not play football. And I think that also played a little bit of a role because he just didn't really know how violent it was, truthfully. In today's world, we were getting a large sense of that. Yeah. Obviously, with the CTE and the issues that these professional players are encountering, I know myself, I'm not even certain that I would let my kids play football. And I had my bell rung a few times. This That's was part of the game. One of those situations. So the coach goes, All right, screw these guys. Same play. We're going right back up again. at them. I go low again. I get them down for a second time. And at this point, it's not a fluke. So yeah. Their coach is upset. Our coaches are absolutely celebrating. And I won player of the game, chips and salsa on the bus ride home. And that was really the turning point for me in my freshman year, because now I had the seniors on our football team and our football team was the talk of school. Those seniors rallied around me and said, you're not picking on AJ. AJ can play football. And that was a pretty big moment. So I ended up getting a varsity letter as a freshman, I had a varsity yeah. coat. This is setting up the rest of high school as a freshman. I Looking felt pretty it. good. Yeah, I, I, I got, felt a, it got a jacket, got a letter. <laughs> so I had a crush on a girl that lived a couple blocks away from us. And I was determined to get her out on a date. And well, yeah, you got a letter now, you got a jacket. So I'm talking to my friends. You know, she didn't show any interest to any of the other guys in school. I didn't know her. She went to the grade school with everyone else. Apparently, the boys that she was interested in were going to different high schools. So I waltzed up to her uh, lunchroom time, and I'm all excited to ask her out to the dance. And I walk up to her while she's eating, and I'm so nervous. I just blurt out, will you go to the dance with me? She's so flustered that she doesn't even know what to do. Her mouth is full of food and she just shakes her head no. And I just remember being like completely defeated. And my buddies were doing their best to pick me up, but I ended up not even going to the dance. A few of my buddies went to the dance. And at that point, I was really on shaky ground with women in my high school. I was not someone that was getting much attention from the ladies. I relied heavily on my football teammates as friends at this point. So I was still an outsider through the first couple years of high school. And then I started to start to play other sports. I started playing basketball and then grew into tennis. And I started to put some things together and, and finally started to date when I was a senior in high school. But I was always really close with my sister and her friends. So as you can imagine, you know, she's two years younger and her friends are coming over the house. So I'm hearing all their girl talk about what boys they like, what signals they're giving to these boys. And for me, it was really eye-opening that a lot of my guy friends had none of this information. I just didn't have the social skills to really put it in action until I got to college. And that's when things really started clicking for me in that regard. But I was definitely introverted through much of my uh, young adult life. Well, now we're rolling through high school and we're looking into college and I want to get back to the science part of this because this is a big part of who you are as a person and this is also something that we've connected on and of course that we hold to the cornerstone of this company. Now that we're rolling to our senior year of high school, where is the science at? Is it to the forefront and what 
interests are there that are the that are holding your attention and and where is dad pushing you i honestly had a very tenuous relationship with my teachers i was a smart aleck i love proving people wrong and remember i had this encyclopedia that i these are all things that you still do by the way <laughs> I, I know listeners are shocked right <laughs> So we actually have a lot of fun with it right here, but yes, this is all still in your personality. So there was this one teacher in particular who was head of NHS. And as I was getting into my junior year, my dad was really preaching, hey, you got to buckle down. You got to score well on your ACT and you got to get into Michigan. And being an NHS member, National Honor Society member was a really big deal. No one in my family had done that. So this teacher had it out for me. She did not like me. And she was in charge of NHS, so I didn't get in. My dad was quite look, frustrated look, with me. Let's paint a picture here. So let's back up just a little bit. Why was their relationship with this teacher so contentious? So she taught history, and I happened to, it was one of those other subjects outside of yeah. biology that I we have a love. love. Going back, I keep going back to this encyclopedia. It was just one of those things. Like I, I was so attracted, especially to Civil War history and the Revolutionary <clears throat> War history. There was a couple projects that I did in middle school where I did deep dives into mm -hmm. some Civil War battles and some Revolutionary War battles. And she was teaching history, and I would point out her mistakes yeah. and errors to the delight of the students sitting next to me. Finally, at this point, she had said, I can't get into NHS. So I was attacking her. I was like, mm -hmm. I'm taking her out of course. for this. <laughs> so we were talking about the Declaration of Independence, and she misspoke, and I pointed something out. And she was really flustered. And this was like after the fourth or fifth time this had happened this semester. Class is ending. All my buddies are snickering and laughing that I, I got her good, right? So I'm walking out and I can hear a big to-do behind me. And she comes charging at me. She's very upset. She wants to talk to me outside of class. She feels that I showed her up. And I just keep walking. And she's calling me, Andy, Andy, get back here. And I, I just, <laughs> I refuse to get back. And she goes and throws a pen at me. Ugh. And I turn around like Matrix style and I see this pen and I catch it one handed. <laughs> one thing that I am really proud of is hand eye coordination yeah. as a receiver. I felt I could catch things. I didn't have speed. I wasn't much in the way of a defensive player at this point in my high school career, but I could catch. So I catch this pen and I just walk straight to the principal's office holding her pen. And I say, she just threw this pen at me. <laughs> so she got put on suspension and lost her chair of NHS. Well, okay, here we go, yeah. I was not doing much in terms of winning teachers over no. my high school. I was the black sheep. I made their lives hell. And a lot of my smart aleck ways came back to bite me when it came time to apply to college, right? There were not a lot of teachers willing to give me a letter of recommendation. No. I was on a lot of shit list. It's all on your permanent record. <laughs> so my dad was adamant that he wanted me to go to Michigan. I really wanted to go to the University of Chicago. I had an opportunity between my junior and senior year to take some med school classes up at Loyola University in Chicago. And I was like, I love Chicago. I want to go to school here. My dad wanted me to go to Michigan. And unfortunately, in my senior year, my dad had a freak accident at work. So part of his job as he transitioned out of the water department into parks and recreation department, he was helping some summer students build a jungle gym. And as you can imagine, 
you know, these kids, they're 18, 19 year old kids. It's a summer job. Yeah. They don't give two shits. They're holding up this beam. My dad's trying to help get it in place so they can get the cement to cure. And the beam falls on the back of my dad's neck and crushes some vertebrae and tears his rotator cuff. So my dad is now laid up. He has extensive surgery. He lost feeling in a few of his fingers. And it, it took multiple neck surgeries for him to recover most of the feeling in his arm. But in this time, he's laid off from work. He gains some weight. He is really depressed. And he gets hooked on opioids for all this pain. He's not going to my football games my senior year. He's in pretty bad shape medically. So at that point, I decide going to Chicago is not a good idea. I need to stay close to home. Yeah. I felt that my aunt and my dad had made a lot of sacrifices for me and my sister. So I stayed in Michigan and I ended up going to the University of Michigan for undergrad and then for graduate school. When I got to Michigan, that was completely eye-opening to me. I grew up very blue-collar, humble beginnings. My dad, when we were growing up, he lost his job multiple times. So we were actually eating government cheese. I remember going to the food bank and collecting these cans of goods that they give you on food stamps. And as I started to put things together and, and got into college, Michigan is a very cosmopolitan school. Mm -hmm. You have really wealthy kids from the East and West Coast who end up going there. So this is the first time that I'm interacting with kids that are not blue collar kids. Yeah. They are not, you know, Rust Belt, Midwestern kids. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. I just want to point out, like, for myself, for that to have happened, it's when I moved to Chapel Hill and I started realizing that other people were working with different models and frameworks, something that we've talked about in a few episodes ago. So if this is your first time and you're seeing this, it starts to, at least for me, I just open up more doors and more questions about all these different ways about going about things. And I'm sure we'll hear about it here, but also it presented, you're dealing with you know, a lot of smart people from a lot of the best places around and a lot of people who had access to a lot of great libraries and great schooling. And now you're in that world. Yeah. And it, it was jarring. Uh, I'll be honest. 
as I moved through my undergraduate career, I started to find myself socially. I was now in a situation where people were more open to making friends than this closed off private high school where everyone was pretty clicky because they had gone uh, literally since kindergarten through high school together. So this was an opportunity for me to create a new reputation and reinvent myself in a lot of ways. And that was really when I started putting some work into getting better with the opposite sex and having better relationships in general. But I also really threw myself into pre-med. I was adamant that I wanted to become a doctor. And as I moved through my college career, I realized that I had decent grades. I, I certainly was not a 4.0, but I was in the, the low 3.0, 3.3 range. And I was working towards getting it to 3.5 so I could apply to a med school and, and actually get in. Let me ask you this. So in the previous schools from your junior high and high school, while well, you're painting this picture that you didn't really have to try very hard and you were able to ace things and get through school very easily. And when you got to college, where did you think that, well, I'm just going to do my usual thing and then all of a sudden realize, okay, that's not going to work. That's now I have to put in some more effort. Like where did that happen or did that happen? That realization truthfully came in graduate school. The reckoning came in graduate school for me. Undergrad, don't get me wrong, organic chemistry, physics, biochemistry, they were difficult courses, but they were graded on a curve ah. as, as long <laughs> as you put in the effort on test time, you could still get decent grades. Yeah, so, as long as you're in the mix, you're in yeah, the mix. I was able to string some things together. I got my GPA up and now I was studying for the MCAT mm -hmm. and I realized that, you know, my GPA is certainly not stellar. So I got to do something else to set myself apart. I should probably get a job in a hospital and get something to talk about on these interviews, sure. these med schools. So I get my first real job in a hospital. This job, I'm working in the emergency room. Originally, I was just checking in patients, verifying all their information. Then they moved me back into the clinic side of things, and my job was to verify insurance treatment. So let's say a patient came in and they broke a bone. Well, the emergency room doctor would look at the x-ray and go, wow, this is a compound fracture. I'm not going to be able to handle this on my own. We should probably get an orthopedic surgeon in here. He may need surgery to put a plate in, screws, et cetera. My job was to call the insurance company and make sure that the insurance was valid before they called this orthopedic surgeon who was going to build the hospital even more for his time, right? And there are a few instances where patients came in and were trying to use a sibling's sure. insurance card or their insurance had expired. So as you can imagine, there was a couple times where I'm on the phone and the patient's family is looking at me like, give us good news. And I'm like, sorry to tell you, this isn't covered. That was my first real inkling that, you know, modern medicine is not all about shiny white lab coats and having this great job that everyone looks up to. It's about making the hospital money. Bottom line matters. And a yeah. lot of times to the detriment of the doctors themselves. You know, that can not only be a shock, I mean, you can take the wind out of your cells if you have this romanticized idea of helping people and being part of a system that is caring and all the romanticized vision that comes with that. It's a beautiful thing when you look at it from that direction, but if you have people yelling at you that you're not going to be able to fix them and, it, and it's because of you won't lie. <laughs> and imagine, <laughs> and right? This narrative starts in grade school. My dad is a big part of the narrative. He's sharing it with everyone. So now I have all of my friends and family think I'm going to be a doctor. I've been telling myself I'm going to be a doctor. And now I have this realization that maybe this isn't for me. 
at that point, I tell my dad, I'm like, listen, I think I want to take a year off after I graduate. I think I want to hold off on applying to medical schools. How do you like that? He was not thrilled. <laughs> my dad at this point says, listen, I'm not going to pay for you to find yourself in this gap year. You need to get a yeah. job. And I really wanted to go backpack through Europe. I'm wrecking my brain trying to figure out what kind of job I can get with a bio degree that actually pays decent money. And I end up getting a job in a lab doing research. It's my first time doing actual research. I had done some laboratory work in undergrad, but nothing at, at this level. And my project was really fascinating. So about 15 years ago, there was this novel paradigm in cancer research called cancer stem cells, with a theory being that the reason a lot of patients go into remission, but their cancer comes back is because the stem cells create the tumor and our cancer therapeutics can kill the non-cancer stem cells. So the, they're cancer cells, but they're not the stem cells that produce the tumor. What ends up happening, that's how the tumor shrinks, but these stem cells stick around and over time, they then grow the tumor back. So we were looking for head and neck cancer stem cells. And my boss was a surgeon. This was his first project too. He was dipping his toe into research. So my job was fascinating. I got to go into this lab. My boss was a surgeon, so I didn't really see him. I got to work very independently, set my own hours, do a lot of work with animals. So I'd scrub into the OR. I'd get a tumor piece from the doctor who just resected it from a patient. I'd run down to the animal lab, implant it in a mouse, and then do a bunch of tests with flow cytometry to try to isolate this population of cells. And I know we do have a few biologists listening. So uh, I was looking for CD44 positive, CD24 negative, or low cells. So those are cell surface markers that we could tag and sort the cells by. What I had done through a series of experiments was isolate what we thought was this population of cancer stem cells that when I injected it into a mouse could repopulate this heterogeneous tumor. After a little over a year's worth of work, my boss is all excited with our results. They're looking really novel. And other people are publishing cancer stem cells, papers in breast cancer and other types of cancer. So we're really excited. We think that this is going to get us a top tier journal article and it's really going to set both of our careers up for success. And I remember walking into the lab and my boss was there and he's not normally there, right? He's a surgeon. Yeah. So I just thought this was a little odd. And he's like, hey, Stanford scooped us. What does that even mean? I don't, I don't know this terminology. And he's like, well, Stanford has the same results and they're going to publish in PNAS before us. So we're not going to be able to publish this paper. And I was like, what do you mean? This is a year's worth of work. Mm -hmm. Someone's got to take this. This is amazing results. We have the results we're looking for. He's like, yeah, they're not interested. I'm trying to figure out how does this happen? How does a year's worth of my work flush down the toilet, essentially? When I had told my dad I'm going to be a published author, see dad, I wasn't just farting around when I didn't go to medical school. I'm actually doing something of interest. My boss was distraught, as you can imagine. He needed this to become a tenured professor. So he reached out to Stanford and tried to make a deal with them. How can we combine our research to get it published? And Stanford had a very famous stem cell lab. Dr. Irv Weissman was the leader of this lab. And he is a fantastic guy, published numerous papers, world-renowned scientist, so he basically was able to publish in any journal he wanted. Right. And this is a very small project in his lab that was cranking out research left and right. So the journal, PNAS, jumped at the opportunity to publish a Dr. Weissman paper. You know, my boss, Dr. Prince, he didn't want to see this thing fail. So when we decided to combine results, well, 
Dr. Prince got some credit and Dr. Weissman's people got credit. I moved to third author on the paper. As you can imagine, in the moment, it felt like the world was ending. And I remember my dad had spent like $200 plus on, a, on the actual physical journal. Oh. <laughs> and he opens it up and he's trying to find my name and he's looking and looking. He's like, where is your name? I said, dad, it's, it's on the paper. I'm the third author. And he's like, got a squint. I mean, the text is so tiny. So you can imagine it was really deflating. It felt to me like, what is up with science? Like I saw the medical profession as now being not this beacon of bright, shiny light that everyone looks up to. Now I'm seeing, oh, well, medical research is that. It's not a meritocracy. It's political. You need to yes. know the right people. Yes, from top to bottom, so much red tape. You know, now I'm starting to really recognize the value of relationships. To go along with that, you're talking about how political it is, and let alone having somebody from that organization who is able to go out and charm some folks to get some money to come in to fund these projects, to, to get those grants. I'll be honest with you. There were some... MD, PhD students working in the lab, and they were under pressure. They were willing to falsify some data. I can't remember the exact points that have come out, but there's been a lot of data fudged. In fact, I think what we're seeing now is a lot of that sugar data from the 60s and how much that's been fudged. Yeah, so this was you know right around the time when Photoshop was really taking off in the medical field. So as you can imagine, right, we're looking at novel cancer therapeutics and chemotherapeutics. So obviously the most important thing in the world is shrinking the tumor. That's what everyone yeah. wants to show. But I remember sitting in some of these lab meetings and I, if you look at the image, <laughs> you squint a little bit, you're like, yeah, that just looks like you flipped it around in Photoshop and shrank it by 50%. It's the same tumor. You know, you see some of this stuff go on and you're, and then you, you see that your work doesn't stand on its own. Mm -hmm. You need to know the right people. So I was definitely disillusioned with research, but my boss, he was adamant that I showed promise. And he said, listen, to come in here having no research experience in undergrad and put together a project that in a little over a year is publishable in a top tier journal and has astounding results that could actually lead to more funding, you're basically a graduate student already. Have you thought about a PhD? And I was like, no, I'm not interested in that. I just went through this crap. I'm done with science. And he's like, you have some talent here. I, I think this is something you should seriously consider. And then he sold me on, hey, you know, your dad wants you to be a doctor. Yeah. You came to me saying you weren't sure you wanted to be a doctor. So maybe this is a way to check that box too. Have you ever thought about that? He really pushed and cajoled me to apply. And I applied to U of M and he worked his magic and I, I got accepted into the cancer biology department at the University of Michigan to start working on my PhD. As you can imagine, after going through this whole experience, now I said, well, I want to get in the best lab at Michigan, right? I want to yeah. get in, in the Michigan's Weissman lab, so to speak, where all the top tier talent is and where all these papers are being published regularly. So I sought out a lab that was just not a good fit. My career advisor told me, she said, listen, he doesn't have a good track record with graduate students. He's a phenomenal researcher, but it's a tough lab to be in. You're going to be on your own. You're going to be isolated. And you're going to be working with a lot of postdocs and other people in the lab who they don't care about you at all. They're in to get their papers published yeah. quickly before their green card is up, etc. You know, I joined this lab and I am struggling mightily with imposter syndrome. 
it's the first time in my life that I feel like the dumbest person in the room, <laughs> that I don't belong. And in my 44 years, I've been in that room a few times. <laughs> it is not a fun, fun feeling. However, if you can look at it in the right perspective, there's a lot to be gained and a lot to be learned in that room, but it is a humbling room. Well, in your 20s, that's it's it. a room that you look to avoid. Yes. In my 30s and 40s, it's actually a room that I'm looking for. Sure. I want to be yes. surrounded by people smarter than me. It was a tough adjustment. And I had just started going out regularly with Jordan and the podcast was taking off. So I'm starting my graduate school career. We're going out every night. We're recording the podcast. We're all excited about this new show that we're launching. And my lab work slips. Can we say that it's already not up to par as it, as it is? <laughs> yeah, I was certainly not lighting the science world on fire with my work. And on top of that, it was getting probably 30% of my attention with everything else going on. I was chasing women and I was going out every night and then, oh, I'm hitting record on a podcast and, yeah, and trying to get that thing moving. And the people who are in that, they're giving that 100% of their attention. 110%. And I, I literally, I would joke that there was a, a postdoc that I think legitimately lived in the lab. Yeah. No matter what hour of the day, even if I had to go and check on the animals in the middle of the night. Yeah, he's there. He's there, always burning. To be surrounded by those people, to feel that inferior and start to really have imposter syndrome, I started to dread going into the lab. And my schoolwork and my lab work certainly suffered for it. Jordan was now leaving Michigan. He got a job on Wall Street as an attorney, and he was so excited to move to New York. And the podcast is starting to make a little bit of waves. Mm -hmm. So we had this novel idea for some guerrilla marketing in Ann Arbor. We had started the podcast, and we felt that we wanted to get it in as many hands as possible. Sure. And as you can imagine, 11 years ago, people didn't even know what the hell a podcast was. Jordan and I were going out and it just felt like every night we'd be out in Ann Arbor and we'd be running into guys who were into the pickup stuff or just local guys who wanted to know who are these guys that seem to know everyone, cut the line, have girls around them. And really, when you're going out in Ann Arbor, Ann Arbor is not a big town. We were highly visible at that point. And I decided in talking to Jordan that what if instead of us having these same conversations with these guys who are looking to learn about all these little things we're doing to be better with women and to know the bar owners and get to cut the line, all this good stuff, I said, what if we start a podcast? And Jordan's like, what is that? And I said, I had just read an article on Slashdot. I was a total tech nerd. I was modding Xboxes and Playstations, and I was way into electronics, and Slashdot was one of my daily reads back in the day. And they had a recent post on podcasting and how anyone could start a radio show and they could record their conversation and people could listen to it. And I said, it seems like people want to hear these stories of ours and people want to learn a little bit from us. What if we start a podcast? So that night we went back to my place. I had a condo with a buddy. We hopped on Amazon. We ordered some mics and a soundboard. And the next day they came and we hit record. And I remember staring at each other frozen, not knowing what to say or how to even do anything. And finally, I was like, let me go upstairs and pour us some gin and tonics. After a few of those clinking glasses, all of a sudden we're running our mouths and we hit record and the podcast was launched. So we wanted to make a splash in Ann Arbor, get as many people listening as possible. So we went to Vistaprint and printed out some business cards. And they said, you see her standing there. She looks at you. Now what? Pickuppodcast.com. 
and we decided to drop these on men's urinals all around Ann Arbor so that anyone going to the bathroom would see this and they're in a bar, so maybe they'll take interest in learning how to be better with women. Out of nowhere, the podcast downloads ticked up tremendously. It was like hockey stick-like growth. And Jordan and I were trying to figure out what happened, what led to the podcast growth. We had no idea. And we were out in Ann Arbor at one of our favorite bars at the time. We're hanging out at Rush Street, and there's a group of people at a table, and I'm trying to tell a story with Jordan and trying to flirt with a couple of the women at the table. And this guy comes up to us and is like, I know you guys from somewhere. And we're like, no, I don't think so, man. And we just go back to our conversation. He's kind of like staring at us, checking us out, and then go to the bathroom, and he kind of grabs me outside the bathroom, and he's like, hey, I definitely know you guys from somewhere. And I'm like, I don't know, man. We know a lot of people here. I, I Sorry, I'm not familiar. But I was really just trying to get back to these girls that we were working on. And he's like, no, it's your voice. You guys have a podcast. And we're like, shh, hey, <laughs> keep it down. We got some girls over here. We don't need to be talking about pickup podcasts around these women. And he's like, I love your show. He's like, I shared it with my friends. You guys had the business cards here. And we're like, wait, what? He's like, yeah, I work for Google. I'm in town and I have some buddies that work at Apple and we've been listening to your show. We really enjoy it. And come to find out those Apple employees were the ones that featured us on the homepage in iTunes. It sounds like, you know, when that article came out, that the idea of the content that would be represented through these podcasts, it seems that the conversation you had with Jordan that you recorded is exactly the sort of thing that they were thinking about when they envisioned that idea of such different content of all sorts of things, of people having these conversations and an opportunity for other people to jump in. And it sounds like it was put together and you guys sort of nailed it to where, ah, exactly what we're talking about. Let's make sure that other people can get the idea of this. Hopefully it sparks more of the same. Yeah. And what I will say is we consider ourselves and still do consider ourselves students, not experts. So when you take that view that I can always learn, I want to improve. Well, it became natural for us to say, well, let's interview people that are smarter than us and pick their brains and learn what they do with women that's so successful. So the show started to move into the interview side of things. And mm -hmm. we had a lot of fun talking to guys all over the world. And we started checking out some other courses in this area, some other boot camps that were being run. We weren't really happy with any of the results, as I had said on last week's episode with you. And that's when we met and started really to push this Art of Charm thing. So you and Jordan were in New York. Yep. The company, The Art of Charm, had started, and I was not a part of it. I was a part of the podcast, and I told Jordan, hey, I got this science career. I'm working on this. I'm going to make my dad happy. I'm going to be yeah. a doctor. I don't have time for coaching or anything like that, but I'm happy to support you. Do your thing. You know, Jordan, at the time, was working a full-time law job and trying to start a coaching company and running a podcast. He was a little stressed, and I remember having long conversations with him about what was going on at the company and trying to help him out so he'd be less stressed. And mm -hmm. I was worried for him because just the move to New York was a major ordeal and work was brutal. And here he's got a couple guys in his living room that he's trying to get this company going with. And no one between the three of you guys had business experience. I certainly didn't have business experience. But yeah. from my vantage point, I was concerned that there was going to be a failure. We're having these conversations and he's telling me about all the fun stuff that you guys are doing, trying to get me to come out to New York, get me to come out to New York. Come on, man, you got to come out. We got the Sirius XM show. Well, that was the whole point. I mean, we were having that opportunity and not really knowing how to go about it, but 
New York is the kind of place where you don't really need to know how to go about it. If you just make enough noise, things will come to you. And that was kind of the plan. All right. I just make a bunch of racket and make something and we'll see where it grows from there. And then we'll start implementing certain ideas when we see what kind of noise we can make. So the whole beginning of that was let's get to New York. Let's promote the podcast. Let's promote the Art of Charm and make as much racket as possible. And also the thing was, well, if we make enough racket, Perhaps AJ will come out here and join in on some of the fun here. And there was definitely racket being made. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's one thing that I can do, certainly at that time, was make some racket. I had just got out of the music industry. <laughs> I can make some racket. So <laughs> Jordan convinced me to come out to do the show on Friday for Game On on Sirius XM. Yep. And then party with you guys all weekend. And he said, dude, just fly back into Michigan and go to the lab, get your lab work done. You said lab meetings on Thursday. I don't see what the big deal is. I'm out in New York partying my face off with you guys. I get to the airport drunk on Monday, fly home, and go straight to the lab, bleary-eyed, reeking of booze, and I'm setting up my Western blot experiment, and my boss, who I thought wasn't going to be around, happened to be in the lab that day, and he said, hey, I'd love to see you in my office. I'm like, well, can I finished setting up the Western blot. He said, no, don't worry about it. I was like, oh, that's a little odd. Okay. So I walk in his office and he throws the results of the Western blot at me. He says, well, you have the results right here. Why are you running that experiment again? And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, this Western blot was done over the weekend, right? You, you did it. And I was like, no, are you sure? He has you. <laughs> yeah. And I was and like, you know ah, it. Exactly. Trying, right. I'm trying to look around. Is there any wiggle room here that I can. And listen, I, I, <laughs> I, I was a pretty slippery guy. Yeah. So I was like, feeling him out. Okay. <laughs> and he's like, here, let's go for a little walk. So now we're walking through the lab. And this lab was giant. It was an open type laboratory. So basically, his lab had three benches, and there were other benches for other labs. But it's bustling, machines, everything are running. And uh, we're walking, and he's like, so where were you this weekend if you didn't do the experiment? And I said, I was in New York. I'm sorry. And he's like, oh, what uh, graduate school's function was it? I didn't realize there was a symposium in New York. I was like, you see, it wasn't really graduate school related. It was more of a personal trip. He's like, oh, personal trip. Okay. He's like, let me ask you something. Uh, how many people here in this office do you <laughs> think weren't here on the weekend? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I'll never forget. He just put his finger into my chest. He goes, you, you were the only one who wasn't here this weekend. That hit me. Yeah. Like, here I was. I'm working on his grant. I'm in his lab. I'm responsible to him. And here I am farting around in New York on the weekend, partying it up. And that's where all my thoughts and interests lied. Now, my boss and I are not getting along with my imposter syndrome. And really, I did look up to him. He's a phenomenal researcher, super bright. And I felt that I just couldn't compete. I couldn't hold my own. It really brought out a lot of my shyness and being timid and being passive. And in that laboratory, surrounded by type A personalities, sure. you're going to get eaten alive if you're passive. Yeah. And well, that and you're not committed fully to that venture. Yeah. So I started a project on notch signaling in the gut. I was really interested in notch signaling role in colon cancer. One of the postdocs in the lab, his project wasn't going so well. He was looking for anything that he could publish. So he was more than happy if AJ's not in the lab. Well, let me do some of these experiments. Yeah. Let me see what's going on with this notch signaling. So <laughs> as you can imagine, I'm not in the lab. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I have other postdocs more than happy to take over my project. Sure. And my boss just wants to get it done. He doesn't yep. care who does it. Nope. At that point, I was so focused on 
the podcast and what you guys are doing in New York. Now I was so fascinated. I got to hang out at SiriusXM studio. Like this is a real business. This is a real deal thing here. I'm waking up in the morning, checking my Art of Charm email. I'm going to bed, thinking about Art of Charm, sending Jordan messages, do this. Oh, we should check this out. So excited about what you guys were doing. Well, and also at this point, Jordan had made mention to me several times that that you were having trouble in Michigan. You really weren't quite sure what you were going to do. And so for myself, I saw it as an opportunity that AJ's on the ropes out there. For us to make any gains with the Art of Charm, it was always like Jordan would stop everything and go, well, I need to call you AJ. We need to check in with him. And I was like, well, if this is the game we're going to play, we need to fix this because I'm here for one reason, which is to make enough racket with the Art of Charm as possible and blow this thing out. And if him calling to get confirmation from AJ is slowing this down and hold us back, well, the only thing that I could see is AJ needs to get out here considering that I'm hearing he's on the ropes. This shouldn't be too hard at all. Let's notch up the racket making. Yeah, it, it certainly <laughs> was not a hard sell at that point. I mean, I did not want to be in the lab. I did not fit in with my lab mates. My boss at that point was very frustrated with me. I then went on to have my first thesis committee meeting, and I stupidly <laughs> sent the slides to my boss, and he had a BlackBerry at the time, and he was always on that thing constantly. So I didn't get a response back on my slides. So I just assumed he saw them and they were good. Good to go. So I do a little bit of prep, not nearly enough as I should. And my thesis committee is made up of my boss. He's the chair. And then there's two scientists that are unrelated to cancer. So Drosophila researchers looking at notch signaling and fruit mm -hmm. flies. And then I had two uh, researchers who were in the cancer space and one that I handpicked that I had worked on that had neck experiments with. So I'm getting started on my slides. I'm probably on like the third or fourth slide talking about notch signaling in the brain. And notch signaling is one of those pathways that has multiple uses throughout the body. So different organs mm -hmm. have different functions for notch. It can signal positively and negatively. So I was looking at some neurological research on notch and I had a slide up about it and Immediately, my boss fires up his hand and says, well, the signaling in the gut is nothing like the brain. What? Why is this slide up here? And I was like, oh, uh, well, if I thought it was an interesting point about notch signaling. And I go back in and I get a few slides ahead. And he's like, well, this, did you even read this paper? This paper's been retracted. Let me ask you at this point, do you think that he was too busy to go through them before? and and Or do you think he purposely held on to do it in front of everyone to really knock you about? He's a brilliant man. I'm certain that it's the latter, not the <laughs> former. And I'm certain that there was a message that was meant to be sent. Mm -hmm. and listen, I needed to hear it, man. Yeah, sure. I was floating through grad school, and grad school is not a place that you float through. The schoolwork was incredibly challenging. I'm rotating through these labs, and I'm also going out trying to be social. Those things don't really overlap well. No, they do not. So at this point, I feel like my relationship with my boss is frayed to a point where it's there's nothing left and you guys are doing awesome things in New York. So I call my dad. My dad is definitely upset. I'm dropping out of graduate school to pursue a podcast with Jordan, who you know, and then two other guys you've never heard of. I'm sure knowing what I know from what you've told me about your father and we were able to equate to my upbringing and my dad a lot. I can understand that explaining to him about this podcast business is not connecting. 
It's, it's not hitting on any button that he could feel good about. I mean, my dad raised me Catholic. Yep. Obviously, in Catholicism, there's no sex before marriage. Yep. They tend to take a very strict rule around dating and how you interact with women. So because of all of that, from my dad's viewpoint, he's like, what the heck is this podcast about talking to women? What is wrong with you? So I moved to New York, and my dad is not willing to discuss what is going on in New York. Of course not. He doesn't want to tell friends and family that I dropped out. He is totally embarrassed because, listen, this is me tearing apart his narrative just as much as my own. Absolutely. And I think it would get to the point that any more explanation would only piss him off even more. <laughs> and he's looking at this as AJ's being an idiot. He'll be back to Michigan in less than a year. He's just got to get this out of his system. So he is just biding his time and not really even taking much interest in what's going on at the Art of Charm. New York's a crazy place. There's a lot going on. The company, none of us had any experience running a business. Let's just set it up. It was pure chaos. Yeah. The game plan up until that point was make enough racket as possible. Make all the racket that you possibly can, and we'll decide to do with it from there. Which, looking back, you know, there's much better ways of going about it. But hey, I would have to say taking action is much better than not doing anything. And making racket, hey, can get you pretty far. It's action. <laughs> It is action. It's not inaction. <laughs> so, you know, I joined the team and I'm certainly not looking to run the show. I feel that what I bring is organization uh -huh. and an ability to problem solve and get things done. The team at this point is massive. I mean, there's a bunch of interns, there's a bunch of part-time, there's a bunch of full-time staff. Well, to go along with the making racket narrative, the more people you get, the more racket you can make. And at that point, that was the plan. That's what you were rolling into. So I get out there and my girlfriend at the time, she had just landed her job as a financial planner for Edward Jones. And this was going to be her career. She'd passed the exams. She was ready to go. She had already started doing a little bit of it in Ann Arbor. We moved in together and we were spending an incredible amount of time together, brand new furniture, just signed the lease. And here I am. And I say, hey, I'm moving to New York. I didn't even say we are moving. To New York. <laughs> I said, I'm moving to New York. Yeah, I'm moving to New York. And she's losing her yeah. mind, right? What, what is wrong with you? Like, you're really going to just leave me here? You know, I just started this career. I can't drop everything. And let alone being worried about what are you doing with your career? Right. <laughs> and, you know, she was certainly attracted to Dr. AJ, yeah. research AJ, of course. And she had studied psychology. She had done research herself. So it was shocking to her that I would leave all of that for this, for a business with friends, a podcast. I don't get it. And we both moved to New York. And I remember we had to pack up the entire apartment. We just got all this new furniture, had a nice projector and an aquarium coffee table. Yeah, because, you know, when a startup in New York and one of those little fish tank apartments, certainly we could use all that stuff. So I, I asked, <laughs> hey, where am I going to be staying? Yeah, and we got your room. Yeah, you guys said, oh, it's beautiful. It's got a private roof deck, almost a thousand square feet, just the roof deck. Yeah. And I'm seeing all the pictures of the common areas. And I'm like, wow, yeah. this place is pretty nice. We're going to give you some nice pictures. 
it was a, a one bedroom that was converted into a five bedroom. Well, that's typical New York, AJ. That was no underhanded <laughs> maneuver. And of course, you know, I'm the last to arrive. So everyone else gets their first pick of the bedrooms. Yeah. So all the ones with nice windows, massive amounts of light, those get snatched up first. So we show up and the bedroom that we get actually is through the bathroom. So it's a one bedroom, one bathroom that's converted into a five bedroom, one bathroom with seven other gentlemen living there. So the bathroom is always in use. And in order to get to our bedroom, we had to walk through the bathroom. So there were times that we would be locked in our own room because someone would forget to unlock that bedroom door in the bathroom. So I had to climb <laughs> out the window to get to the kitchen. She's not happy. She's really upset. And at this point, we brought all of our stuff, essentially enough furniture for an entire studio apartment in Michigan, which yeah. is twice the size of the <laughs> studio apartment in New York. So we move in and it's clear that there are some mistakes being made in the business. We're on shaky ground financially. People are starting to realize that this thing might fail. And when that <laughs> happened, there was some people leaving. <clears throat> and when the business partners left, I had to let go of all the staff. To preface that before we get to that point, there is also some fronting going on and a power struggle of just who was going to captain the ship because there's a lot of us. Chaos is being made. But first and foremost, we have people that are there to take a program. And a lot of people, let's be real, who were wanted to focus on things like vision boards and talk about how cool this is going to be five years on the road who can't even look at tomorrow and what needs to be done tomorrow. So this is, of course, where you and I are starting to get allied of what needs to be done here and now. Yeah. So my problem solver skill set kicks in and is like, well, this is a massive problem financially. <laughs> we got to solve it. And I have to let people go. People leave of their own volition because the vision board now looks a lot different when you don't have any money in the yeah. bank. You know, obviously all of the media promotion, the PR that was done was great. It made us it look yeah. incredible to outsiders, but internally there was a lot of strife. There was a lot of struggle. And I remember distinctly when the CEO and business partner stepped aside and was very frustrated with where things were going. Me, you, and Jordan sat on this incredible roof deck about to be evicted and we couldn't make rent. We had just let everyone go. And I said, hey guys, we got two choices here. We can pack it all in, go back to our dads with our tail between our legs, or we can give this another go, but I don't think we should do it in New York. I think we should give it a go in LA. Well, and also with a more focused outlook and a better game plan. I mean, the game plan was a hodgepodge of ideas. You know, I was just reading this thing about how when nation states get built, there's usually some very tough guys that do a lot of dirty work to get that thing into position to be a nation state. And then all of a sudden, the other people come in and go, hey, thanks a lot. You guys did a wonderful job of kicking ass and taking aims, but now we need some real rules and some right. things set up. And you're now going to have to step aside, which they don't like too much because right. they've done all the work to get in this position. So we had this company that had a lot of publicity, a lot of promotion, a lot of great things going on. The racket worked. The racket worked. However. Because there was no real game plan, yes, the money wasn't there for the things in order to sustain it properly because everyone had wild ideas of how that was going to work. There was a power struggle to how this was going to move forward. And that's what you rolled into. Yeah. And for me, 
actions have always spoke louder than words. I buckled in and started digging our way out of this. There was one point Johnny and I were sent to LA to do <laughs> a boot camp. This was back in the day when we still did traveling boot camps. We were in Seattle, Chicago, LA, and we had an amazing trip to LA. The weather was phenomenal. The winter in New York was kicking our ass. Yep. And we were wrapping up an amazing weekend program. We get invited to a party downtown and we arrive at this party. It's in a warehouse and Basically, we have to sign a release when we arrive saying we're not going to use our camera phones and we're not going to take any pictures or talk about any of the people that we're seeing. And then we get inside and it's full of celebrities and it's a full on L.A. party. Enough to get you thinking. And we're driving back to the hotel that, well, I should say morning at that point by the time we left the party. And I remember talking to Johnny being like, this whole L.A. thing, this is kind of fun. I, I could dig this. From a business standpoint, it certainly made more sense because it's a year-round place and we have people flying in from all over the world to take this program and to be part of the Arch Arm. And that's, you know, New York's not so conducive in February. Absolutely not. So that was always in the back of my mind. And I said, hey, guys, things are dicey in New York. Things are really expensive in New York. We've pissed off a few landlords. We've lost a bunch of staff. Let's go spend a winter in L.A sort this stuff out. LA was far cheaper back then, nine years ago now. So we promised Jordan we'd stay six months and we've been here nine years. Yep. <laughs> so the endless summer has certainly wowed us and it's been great for obviously all of the clients that come through the boot camp to have sunny weather year round. That transition, you know, we had built up friends, a social circle in New York. We had a lot of support there. We had a lot of media there. And then we moved out here to LA and I only knew one other person, a buddy of ours, Robbie, who lived west of the 405. And you had some friends from the music industry, but we were really starting from scratch and had to really test our mettle with these social skills that we were crowing about. It says a lot of when you're in that position about uh, who's willing to make this work. When you're thinking about, oh, we're starting this all over again, or now we're going to start it, but we're not going to be loose and goosey crazy as it, it was. Well, that really separates who's in it for what reasons. And it was easy to see the work that we were willing to put in and go for. Because at the end of the day, we all believed in an idea and in an idea worth fighting for. And that becomes very important. And I think anytime I get asked about entrepreneurship and what it takes, I say two things. It takes an idea that you're willing to fight for because you will go to the mat for it if you want it to work. And the other thing is, you will have a great sense of humor and able to laugh at yourself because you better. You better. If you don't, you will not make it as an entrepreneur. And that's why you see like Mark Cuban talking how he can laugh at all kinds of stuff. It just goes with the territory because you will get knocked around and knocked to the ground many times. And now, in just this story, you're hearing one. And there's in that history, that whole time, there's many times where we're looking around going, do we continue this right. insanity? Is this worth fighting for, going to the mat for. So I call my dad. Hey, dad, <laughs> uh, that business that you said it was going to fail, well, it's failing. And now we're taking the show to LA. Three-hour time zone difference. Oh, by the way, I think I'm going to not go back to medical school like you want me to. So he was even more upset. Of course. And thought that I was making an even bigger mistake. <laughs> Just keep digging yourself into this hole, don't you? <laughs> and my girlfriend, of course, is like, what in the hell is wrong with you? Now you're moving me all the way to the opposite coast. So it was a crazy transition. It was very difficult. From all of that, we start to get 
some things moving, but we're still struggling here in L.A. Mm -hmm. And the University of Michigan finds a media piece, a little PR piece about us and writes us to invite Jordan and I to come talk at the University of Michigan as successful alumni. And they put on a speaking series called What I Wish I Learned in Undergrad. And they were treating us like VIPs, flying us in from L.A. to Ann Arbor, putting us up in a hotel, restaurants, football tickets, private stadium tour, and then we have to give this talk. So I call my dad. I'm all excited. Dad, you're never going to believe this. The University of Michigan has deemed me and Jordan successful alumni, and now they want us to talk. Get here now. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> they have the right guys. <laughs> So I'll never forget, I'm telling my dad all these great things that U of M is going to do for us. And he says, well, I hope the football tickets are good. Click. <laughs> At this point, my dad was sick of hearing about the Art of Charm. Sure, he saw I bet. how stressful it was from afar. He certainly felt like it was a huge waste of my talent and time to be focusing on a podcast. Didn't really get the point or the premise of it. And now we're flying out to Ann Arbor. And in flying out to Ann Arbor, we get to go to the game with our fathers. It's yeah. phenomenal. And we get this private stadium tour. And, and that was really the highlight for my dad because we got to walk on the field and did the Heisman pose in the end zone like Desmond Howard, played catch with my dad on the field. So now we're gearing up to give this talk. And I asked Jordan to send me his slides. As you can imagine, in undergrad and graduate school, I was forced to use PowerPoint to defend my ideas and give presentations. Public speaking is a big part of grad school, yeah. especially. When I asked Jordan, hey, can you send me your slides? I didn't even think twice. And I'm waiting and I'm waiting on these slides. And I'm pinging them. I'm like, hey, I need these slides to finish the deck. And finally, he sends me the slides and it's just paragraphs of text on the slide. And I call him and I go, hey, Jordan, I think you sent me the wrong slides. He's like, no, that's everything I'm going to say in the talk. I was like, have you never used PowerPoint before? And he laughed. He was like, no, I went to law school. And it didn't even dawn on me yeah. that obviously watching courtroom dramas, no lawyers are using PowerPoint. It's Never seen that on LA Law. <laughs> so with that in mind, you know, now we're scrambling. We're totally unprepared. And our families are there, packed auditorium. Everyone's excited to hear us. We're essentially VIPs this day. We are not hitting it out of the park by any means. The talk starts bad. We're talking over each other. It's a little not cohesive, I guess you could say. It finally picks up steam and it, it ends really well. And I remember my dad in the back of the room beaming, really excited to see the ovation and see all these college students take such interest in the art of charm. And that's really for the first time I felt that my dad took some pride in what we were doing in LA, even though he was frustrated that I chose this path. So I fly back to LA. I'm on cloud nine. I'm so excited. My dad is happy. We're talking more frequently. And it's not just about the weather, but it's substantial stuff. <laughs> and he, he's really interested and invested in Art of Charm success. And I decide I want to fly back home to surprise my family for my grandma's 83rd birthday. My grandma played a, a really big role in my development as a child. She babysat us. She stayed at home and made sure that me and my sister were safe while both my aunt and my dad worked nonstop to provide for us. So it meant a lot to go back to Michigan for her. And she was getting up there in age and she was having some health issues. And I get a call from my aunt the day before I'm scheduled to fly. My aunt says, they need me to come home. I say, oh, I was going to surprise you guys tomorrow for grandma's birthday. And she's like, no, we need you to come home today. Can you switch your flight? 
So I rearranged my flight. I ended up having a connection through Charlotte. My uncle, who was essentially my dad's best friend, my dad considered him a brother. They're super close. And he's terrified of flying. So much so that when he took a job down in South Carolina, my dad drove down with him and then my dad flew home. So to see him at the airport was startling. And I knew something wasn't right. And we go to the rental car place and he doesn't really know what to say. He's, he's quiet. It's a long, quiet car ride. And we get to the house and my grandma and my aunt open the door and they tell me that my dad passed away of a heart attack in his sleep. And it's devastating. I took my dad for granted in a lot of ways and I didn't spend as much time with him as I would have liked trying to build this business, selfishly moving around. And I didn't feel communication was worthwhile at that point because we were fighting quite a bit about the art of charm and some of my choices. So I get the news. My aunt says, listen, your dad didn't have a will. There's no memorial plans. We need you to organize the funeral for him. And she hands me his address book. And I remember holding the address book, really concerned about how I'm going to talk to these people in this address book and what I'm going to say, because my dad had been telling some people, oh, AJ's doing research. He's on fellowship. He certainly wasn't talking about the art of charm publicly, so I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what story I was going to tell these people that I hadn't seen or talked to in years. And I pick up the phone, I call the first person, and his name's Rob, one of my dad's really good friends out in Oregon, and, and I talk to him, and he goes, oh my God, your dad just called us a few months ago to tell us about that talk you gave at Michigan, and, and how he got to go in the field with you, and the art of charm, and how successful the company is. He's so proud of you. And I was blown away. I called the next person and it literally felt like my dad a few months earlier just picked up his phone book and was just like, yeah. I got to call and share this story about my son with everyone. So I felt for the first time that I really uh, did have my dad's pride and approval in what I was doing. So now I have to do something to memorialize my dad. My dad being a huge Michigan football fan, I decide that I'm going to honor him through the stadium. So I reach out to this student union director who put together the talk series that yeah. we were a part of and organized the tour and everything. And I say, hey, my dad passed away. He's like, oh my God, I can't believe it. Your dad was so full of energy. And I said, yeah, it was sudden for everyone. But I have all these family and friends coming in for my dad's funeral. I don't want football tickets, but I would love to be able to take a few of them on the stadium tour. It meant a lot to my dad. And he said, absolutely no problem. So we go on the stadium tour. And in my mind, since I've been on the tour once before, I know the whole process. You start in the locker room, trying on the helmets and jerseys, and you go to the weight room and you meet the strength and conditioning coaches. And then finally, they take you through the tunnel and you get to go on the field. So while everyone's messing around in the locker room and making their way to the weight room, I snuck onto the field and I spread some of my father's ashes on the 50 yard line. And we say that my dad has the best seats in the big house. Yes. I get back to LA and I'm tremendously depressed, distraught, and it's a difficult time for me and my family. And, you know, the company is certainly not where we want it. We're having struggles. We're well, trying to yes, grow things. It was a very new and young thing at, at that point as well. And unfortunately, a lot of these negative emotions take their toll on me, on my girlfriend at the time. And she ends up breaking up with me. And I really felt lost and unsure of myself, second guessing a lot of decisions I made and joining the company and moving away from my family and who sacrificed so much for me. But through all of this, you know, my dad had friends, but relationships weren't his thing. He, he was not strong in that area. He had been divorced. And I really felt that this was an area that I wanted to get solved for myself. I wanted to end up with the right person and I, I wanted to have more confidence in this area. So really through 
myself back into the company, so to speak, and start teaching and focusing more on my own personal growth. And through all of that, I like sharing the story in boot camp because I think it illustrates, to your point, Johnny, what a lot of us as young men feel looking up to our fathers, trying to win over our parents' approval. And I think regardless if it's mom or dad or if it's male or female, I think we all look to our parents for approval and we want our choices to be validated by their thoughts and feelings. And in those moments where they're not, you can really question yourself and it can really torment you. So it was an opportunity for me to grow and learn a lot more about myself and ultimately focus on the things that do matter and reconnecting with my family and friends. And through all of this, I hope that those of you listening who do have parents who are in situations where maybe you're not talking, you're frustrated with one another, they don't share your vision or you don't share their vision, you realize that it takes two to tango. And I could have made a decision at any point to reach out to my dad to try to make amends. But, you know, I was stubborn. He was stubborn. And when two people are stubborn, you have real issues. I look to this moment and I share it because I hope that there are people in your lives that, you know, mean a lot to you that even if they're frustrated with you right now, it doesn't mean that they don't love you, they don't support you. And taking an opportunity to recalibrate that relationship and drop your front and say, hey, I care about you. You've had an amazing impact on me and I love you can go a long way in those situations. So get back to LA and I feel more driven, emboldened, and ready to take on the world than ever to, one, prove my dad wrong. Of course. Hey, this Art of Charm thing is not just a pipe dream, it's real. And two, realizing how important legacy is and how important it is to leave something. In planning my dad's memorial and seeing all of these friends and family that I hadn't even heard him talk about or really weren't that big a part of my life, come forward and say, yeah, your dad touched me, your dad was an amazing friend in the Navy, X, Y, and Z, realizing that legacy is really important. And I throw myself into AOC. I'm back here in LA and working through some depression, frustration, obviously really focus on improving myself, taking my own medicine, so to speak. As a coach, obviously, we talk so much about change, and I understand change is very difficult. So new emphasis on fitness and health and wanting to live longer and knowing this history of heart issues in my family, especially with men, it's really important. And knowing that I don't handle stress as well as I could, I start partying a little bit, throwing myself out into the dating world. And uh, I have some friends who are asking me to come out to Las Vegas to party for Labor Day weekend. I was supposed to drive out with a buddy, but he bailed last minute and I'm looking at flights, and flights are really expensive. So I end up driving alone, drive out to meet all my buddies in Vegas. I haven't had a buddy, Alex, fly all the way in from London. And we have a great weekend, great guys weekend, hitting all the pool parties, hitting it hard, meeting lots of girls, all that fun stuff. And Monday rolls around. I have to teach boot camp on Tuesday, and I've been doing it for years. And I promised everyone I would be back to teach this class, even though everyone was a little skeptical. I did not want to go out on Labor Day. I didn't want to drink. I knew I had to drive home that night and it's a long drive. So I'm bailing saying, hey, guys, sell my ticket to David Guetta. I'm not going to go. And Alex is like, absolutely not. I flew all this way, drink this Red Bull, we're going. So I begrudgingly go to this pool party and I was having a, a decent weekend, having a lot of fun and low energy in the pool. But sure enough, we start chatting up some people and I, I meet Amy and her friend Colleen and we have a great conversation. And 
I'm having a great time, lose track of time. And now I realize, oh, I got to get back to the hotel. I got to check out and I got to get on the road. So I'm winding things down for the day. And I tell Amy, it's great meeting you. And she's like, what? You can't stay? What, what's going on? And I was like, no, I, I got to go back. And she's like, well, I thought you run the company. I thought this is your company. Why can't you have someone else do this? And I was like, no, I, I teach the programs. I promised my business partners I'd be back. This is really important. Tuesdays are incredibly important for the boot camp. So she can't believe it. She had overheard my friends talking about the party they're going to that night at Hakkasan. And she just assumed that I was going to be there. So she had actually canceled her flight back to Chicago. She yeah. was in Las Vegas for a bachelorette party and they were having so much fun with us. They figured, well, let's stay another night. So she tells me that she canceled her flight and she's really bummed. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't stay. I, I have to go back to LA. So we go to grab a quick bite to eat and we're wrapping up dinner. And I go, okay, well, it was great meeting you, as I said. And she's like, I have this week off of work. It's my first week off starting my second year at work. I've never been to LA. You've been talking about LA all day, how amazing it is, how much fun you have. What if I go back with you to LA and hang out for a few days? I have some sorority sisters there I can spend some time with as well. Then you can show me this great city that you keep crowing about. And I say, sure, let's do it. So she drove back with me from Vegas to LA and spent some time with me. And then we went long distance and we've been together ever since. So almost five years now. It's been truly remarkable how big of an impact that she's had on me as I was coming out of this dark place, as Johnny was sure. saying, working on myself, challenging my own thought processes and challenging myself physically and trying to figure out who I am and what matters to me. Health was something that was important to me, but I didn't really lean into it as much as I should have. It was easier for me to lean into alcohol and partying than it was to lean into working out. But Amy was always very patient with me about that, reminding me over and over again the importance of health. Health is the most important thing that we have. And having a history of poor health in my family, that message really stuck with me. And with her love and support, I feel like I've transformed quite a bit in that area of my life. And also, realize the importance of spending quality time with quality people. And I'm incredibly grateful for that opportunity of having met Amy in a Las Vegas pool party, which you don't expect to find love uh, at Aqua <laughs> Beach necessarily. You find a lot of other things. Exactly. <laughs> I found everything else that summer uh, and I was able to find love. I hope that gives you, the audience, a little bit of a better picture of who I am. I know the last time I was interviewed on this show was episode 100. Yes, it was a while ago. And now things have changed. Yeah, we're close to seven. And the other thing is, we're now to the forefront speaking every week. Corey was the one that asked us to please, you know, here's some topics I would love for you guys to cover. But now that we're hearing your voices, I would love to get a little bit more of an idea of who you and AJ are. And I was laughing because you brought this up. I was like, well, that's a great idea. And you're like, yeah, and you're first. <laughs> I was like, great. I certainly enjoyed it. And I, and well, I thank hope, you for grilling me, Johnny. Yes, I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you all listening out there enjoyed it. And we're excited to continue giving you guys everything that we possibly can. We have some great topics coming. We have some killer interviews coming up. And we're super excited to kick the spring and summer in the high gear with all y'all coming along for that ride with us. You can find us on social media at The Art of Charm on both Twitter and Instagram. If you've enjoyed anything from these recent episodes, we'd love a written testimonial in iTunes about yes. the new toolbox content. 
And we look forward to answering more of your questions and talking about more topics that you'd like us to discuss. So feel free to email AJ at The Art of Charm if you have some topics you'd like us to cover on future episodes. Have a wonderful week. See you guys.